The Apostle Paul was a master at contextualization. Uh, Contextualization is basically recognizing the context in which you're speaking and trying to speak appropriately into it. Uh, The context in which you speak might be different in some places than it is in other places. For example, in Jerusalem or at Pentecost or in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, Paul might speak one way. Um, However, if he is in Athens or if he is in Ephesus, he might need to speak in a different way. Whether he's at a synagogue in a a major city or whether he's at the Areopagus or Mars Hill, he's going to have to recognize his audience has changed. And so one of the the difficult things that I think is a struggle uh, for, for all Christians, I know it's a struggle for me, is being able to speak appropriately into your context, uh, being able to understand your context. And that's one of the things I think, like when you, uh, when you start working with a new church, it, it sometimes is difficult to figure out, okay, what's the best way to approach this subject with these people? Um, or sometimes if you're a guest speaker. You know, I've, I've, I have gone to be a guest speaker before at churches where I didn't know anybody, and I was given a controversial topic like a highly controversial topic. And you think, well, this isn't fun. You know, I don't even know these people. Uh, You should give that topic to someone you know and trust and who loves you, not to some stranger, you know, who comes in. Uh, But but that's one of the, the struggles sometimes is how to package truth without changing truth and how to deliver in such a way that it could be impactful and meaningful to the people who are listening. And I stand amazed at the Apostle Paul's ability to do that. There aren't a lot of people who could adequately make an impact among Jews and Gentiles and in strange cities in which they've never been before. Just enter into that city, find people, and make an impact there. That's an incredible skill set. I don't think it's Paul's skill set alone, by the way, that uh, allows him to do that. I believe that Paul had divine help. Uh, I believe the Holy Spirit was with Paul, and and certainly uh, God was working through him, but it is incredible to see the way that he does it. And I think one of the ways he's able to do it is because he has a certain mindset as he he approaches other people and as he approaches the gospel. He does not have a me-first mindset. As a matter of fact, he has the mindset of a servant. He sees that even teaching in evangelism and in ministry as an act of service to those to whom he is teaching and evangelizing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's in the middle of a pretty lengthy discussion about a topic we don't deal with very much, but we did talk about it some last week, uh, eating meats sacrificed to idols. And Paul is trying to, to help the church understand that even if you have knowledge in your head, intellectually, that an idol is nothing more than wood or stone, there's not actually a God who's behind it, he does want the church to realize a couple of things. One, not everyone's there. Like, you shouldn't necessarily act first out of knowledge, but act first out of love for one another. That will help the church a whole lot more. He then goes on to say some other things, like there might actually be demons behind some of these idols, and so beware of that. Uh, And that an act of fellowship with at a pagan temple is an act of fellowship with demons, and you should not have like the cup of the Lord and fellowship with Him and 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 your brethren, and then go share in fellowship with demons. Like he he makes quite a few points that ultimately ends with him saying, "Flee from idolatry. Like don't even mess around with it." But 
along the way, it's, I, I love the way he gets to these points because it's, it's very well written and, uh, and the, the progression of his argument is, is interesting. But along the way, he talks about love requiring sacrifice on our part for one another. And so he talks about some of the sacrifices that he has made, uh, some of the things that have cost him financially, some of the things that have cost him in his relationship, like not having a wife. He, he describes some of these things as sacrifices that he makes on behalf of the kingdom so that he can better serve others. And one of the things that he says, and this is the main passage I want to read as an introduction to what we'll be talking about in Acts, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19. This is the mindset with which he approaches his, his role in ministry and in teaching others and in making an impact for the kingdom. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law, as under the law, though not uh, being un myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I have become all things to all men, so that by all means I may save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. When you read that, what Paul is saying is, it's not my way or the highway, and you have to adapt to me. Um, one of the things that I think is, is highly emphasized in our culture and in our world is, um, you know, our, our identities and being true to yourself and being who you are. And I don't know that, that Paul's personal identity was his primary goal. I think the gospel was his primary goal. And, uh, and who he was... He tried to find any way and every way that he could use that to the service of others, even if it meant changing himself. Now, again, I don't think that means that, like, you know, if this person sins, Paul's going to go sin with them to be their buddy or something. I don't, I don't think, I mean, clearly that's not what he's saying, and he even adds a couple of uh, clarifying markers through that, you know, I think that, that limits what he's doing. But at the same time, I think we have a tendency sometimes to when we see the world going one day way, we want to make a strong stand against it and pull back as far as we can so that there's no question that we are not like the world. And I think Paul might have perhaps another mindset. I think Paul's mindset might be more, I'm going to do anything and everything that I can without violating what Christ said so that it's easier for the world to accept the message of Christ. I've heard illustrations before, and I get them, and I understand them, and there's, there's good logic to it. It's like, if you want to keep a marble on a plate, if you have a plate, and you have a marble, and you have to keep that marble on the plate, you don't want to keep it near the side of the plate, right? You want to keep it right in the middle, far away from being able to fall off. My kids, sometimes, I don't want them to try to get close to disobeying me. It drives me crazy when they get close. Like, I tell them not to do something, and they get as close to doing that thing as possible. I'm like, all right, fine, you're still in trouble. You know, it's just like, I don't like that. Uh, I want them to, to try to obey as best as they can. But one of the, the problems with that mindset uh, is that we could end up making rules or laws or stands that ultimately aren't necessary to follow Christ. They're not essential to following Christ. And some of those non-essentials 
can push people away. They can, they can refuse the community of the church or refuse the gospel because of barriers that we've set up. For, and with the law of Moses, um, I think sometimes you see this happen. Why, why were there so many traditions that developed over time uh, you know, that the Pharisees may have had uh, uh, that, that Jesus sometimes uh, runs into and there's usually conflict when this happens? Whether it be uh, you know, washing before meals or, or you know, plucking the heads of grain as you walk through a field on the Sabbath. And there's, there's these different traditions. Corbin, he mentions. Uh, why did they develop? They did not develop because Pharisees said, ah, oh, the law of Moses isn't enough. We want to do something better than that. I don't think that's it. I don't think it was out of disrespect for the law of Moses. I think it was out of so much reverence and respect for the law of Moses that they didn't even want to get close to breaking the law of Moses. And so how do you keep the law of Moses sacred and pure? You build some protective fences around it. That's actually one of the illustrations that, that rabbis would use for what the traditions are. They're a fence that keeps you away from breaking the law of Moses. So if you keep the traditions, you won't even get close to breaking the law of Moses. And yet, they would exclude people based on the traditions rather than actually what God said. And that, it's a tough balance. It really is. And again, I'll say I think Paul is a master at it, walking that line. Uh, Paul does things that sometimes shock me. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's go to Acts 15 and let's, uh, let's get to where our lesson is. In Acts, uh, I guess Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, they just left the Jerusalem council where it is very obvious what Paul's view is on the role of circumcision, along with Peter and along with James, uh, that you do not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Certainly Gentiles, that, that's, that's abundantly clear, that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised in order to be a part of the kingdom. Uh, they discussed it and it was, I mean, that was, that was the decision that was made. The very next thing Paul does after beginning his second missionary journey is he has this, uh, he's, he's getting his team ready to go with him. And he gets Silas after him and Barnabas part ways. And then he goes to uh, another city. And if you look at chapter 16 and verse 1, Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. Okay, so that immediately is going to uh, put Timothy in kind of an interesting position here. His mom is Jewish and his father's Greek. Uh, who is he? You know, who's he going to go with? Well, he's a faithful believer. Uh, he believes in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Uh, and uh, so what you see is, in verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul, verse 3, wanted this man to go with them. Paul wants to take Timothy on the missionary journey. But you know what? Timothy is an adult, and he still hasn't been circumcised. So I guess on day eight, when that argument was, was taking place, his dad won. Uh, he, he had not had the sign of the covenant that identified him with the people of Israel. And so Timothy is uncircumcised, and Paul wants to go on the, debate, uh, go on the, the missionary journey with him. So what's Paul going to do? Well, he could say, look, Acts 15, we just had this conference not doing it. You know, he, he's, he's fine. He's, he's not lost. He's, uh, you know, he's someone who everyone thinks highly of. I'm just going to take him with me. But what Paul does instead, he says, he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was Greek. That's such an interesting uh, strategy. Like, I, I, 
Honestly, if I had never read this before and I were just given the, the, the details and asked, what do you think Paul did? I probably would think Paul didn't circumcise him. That would have been my guess, uh, that Paul would have said, no, he doesn't have to be circumcised and I'm not going to. And again, I don't think Paul thinks he does need to be circumcised. I don't think Paul thinks it's essential. Paul, I do not believe, does it for salvation. And if Paul said you need to be circumcised for salvation, Paul would have to repent for that. That would be a big problem. But Paul does recognize we're going to be going to a lot of synagogues and teaching the gospel to a lot of Jewish people on this missionary journey. Even though we're also going to Gentile places and we're going to be speaking to Gentiles, he always goes to the Jews first. And I think he's just trying to say, I don't need another unnecessary obstacle. I don't need another obstacle to get in the way. So I don't think he does it for salvation. I think he does it for the sake of community. But it's really fascinating that Paul is able to take that step with Timothy in order to make the gospel easier to, to digest. The gospel is hard to get people to, to digest, to, to really commit themselves to. To tell people that the Lord and Savior of the world was a crucified Jew is really a difficult message for them to get them to swallow. Uh, Paul uses the word that says it's, it's a scandal, it's a stumbling block. It's foolishness to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to the Jews to say that the, their son of David, who they've been longing for, their Messiah and Lord and Savior and King of the world, is actually a poor carpenter who was nailed to a Roman cross and died. Uh, the resurrection really helps that message, <laughs> but that's a tough message to get people to believe, and you don't need to make it tougher by adding things to it that God doesn't add. You, if the gospel is offensive enough on its own, we don't need to make it more offensive with our presentation or with our additions to it. And so Paul sees with Timothy, circumcision probably won't be an addition to the gospel that makes it harder it will probably actually open more doors for the gospel. So let's do it. On the other hand, and we're not going to get into this, but I will say there's kind of a counterexample in the book of Galatians for Titus, where Titus uh, is emphatically not circumcised because people were trying to force him to. And Paul thinks, you know what? I think circumcising him would become an obstacle for the gospel because then people would misunderstand what the gospel is. And so Paul has to walk this line, and I think he does it really well. Um, so as you continue to read Acts, you'll see him do these types of things. You'll see him go into the temple to offer sacrifice uh, because the Jerusalem church thinks it will help build unity. And so Paul does that. I mean, long after being a Christian, I don't think that Paul thought, hey, my sins won't be forgiven if I don't go to the temple and offer the sacrifice. Or I don't think he, he thought this is essential to be right before God. But he did think, if I'm going to continue to make an impact among Gentiles, and continue to have uh, make an impact with the Jewish Christians of which you know are my are my countrymen and my brethren, then this is something I will do for the gospel. Um, and so Paul has to has to do that. Uh, but as you read through, you'll see different strategies in different places among different people. Why? Because he's not putting himself number one. He's made himself a slave to all men so that by all means he might save some of them. Um, and so you see this happen throughout, throughout Acts. You can see when Paul, uh, when Paul in Acts chapter 17, when he gets to Thessalonica, 17 and verse 2, he goes to a synagogue and this is his custom. It says, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he goes to the synagogue uh, for three Sabbaths, and he reasons from the scriptures. This, he's in a Jewish context. 
Sabbath, synagogue, scriptures. They're all three right there. The, the, the three S's of what Paul's uh, you know, missionary strategy is. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he, he discusses the scriptures with them. Leads to persecution. He has to leave. So he ends up going to Berea. And uh, if you get to chapter 17 and verse 10, it says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So he goes to Berea. He uh, goes to the synagogue. He begins reasoning with the scriptures. The people are, are studying the scriptures themselves, and they're arriving at some conclusions, and great things are happening. But notice how central scripture is to his evangelistic process when he's reasoning among Jews. Acts 17 then moves on to another city, the city of Athens. Paul finds himself there alone, and he does go to the synagogues. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 17 and verse 17, he says he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing uh, Gentiles and uh, in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. Those are two very different environments to be, uh, to be teaching the gospel in. One is among, you know, in the synagogue, among the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, which is like the proselytes, uh, or, or at least those who, uh, who had adopted certain customs of Israel and worshipped the God of Israel. And the other hand, you have the marketplace where you have just, just Gentiles walking around. And Paul finds himself in Athens you know, even though he is from Jerusalem. There's an interesting question asked. Uh, uh, one, of the, one of the church fathers in it's like the late 2nd, early 3rd century, Tertullian, asked the question, you know, what has uh, Athens to do with Jerusalem? Um, the, the idea is that Athens is known for its philosophy. And I think you have to define philosophy carefully to understand what Tertullian's point is because he's not, uh, he's not against deep critical thought. He's not against logic and rationality. He's, he's a big fan of those things. But Jerusalem has a philosophy also. Jerusalem has its own uh, whole literature on, on philosophy and, uh, and wisdom literature. It's like you can read through the, the scriptures of Israel, and there's a whole lot in there about wisdom. But the foundation of wisdom is God. The foundation of all that true philosophy is, is God. And for Christians, it is God revealed in Jesus Christ. That is, that is what philosophy and wisdom ultimately is rooted on. That's what truth comes from. Every, every ideology in this world, if it's absent of Christ, it's going to be uh, of, of diminishing value for the Christian. The closer you are to Christ, the greater ground you have for any sort of, of deep inquiry. Athens, however, is quite different. Uh, Athens loves philosophy. We're going to see some of the things that they love here as we read Acts 17. Uh, but they have a philosophy devoid of the God of Israel and devoid of Jesus Christ. Uh, they are going to approach wisdom, and the, that's what the word philosophy is, by the way. It's love of wisdom. Uh, it, that, that's like what the word actually means. Uh, phileo and Sophia. It's the word love and the word wisdom. You put it together, philosophy. Um, but, uh, but it's like their love of wisdom is more rooted in uh, you know, 
academia, intellectualism, uh, novel ideas and, and argumentation and all that stuff. And it's not grounded in the, the locus of all of wisdom, which is God himself. And so he asked this question, and we're about to see what happens when Jerusalem and Athens meet here in Acts chapter 17. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating encounter. So Paul's there in Athens. Uh, if you look at verse 16, it says his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing a city full of idols. You know, Athens is an impressive place. Uh, some of the temples, some of the idols, the architecture is beautiful. The way that it's on the city is incredible. And Paul's walking through and he's just not that impressed. Uh, there's something else that is weighing on his mind a whole lot more. He's not so enamored and impressed with what human beings have accomplished that uh, he just kind of falls under the, the, you know, falls captive under the, the beauty of it all. He's provoked by, there's a city that prides itself on its intellectualism. There's a city that prides itself on its philosophy, and yet it's a city that worships the dead rocks and dirt around it. It's the city that worships the dead idols. And, and I think he sees squandered opportunity. Uh, and so he's provoked within him. He begins to teach. And as he does so, he gets uh, an opportunity. You get to verse 18. It says, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. By the way, those are contextualization. If you're talking to Stoic philosophers and you're talking to Epicurean philosophers, that's quite a different audience also. Uh, it's like they, they, they have very different worldviews, vastly different worldviews. Um, uh, but, uh, but Paul is able to interact with, with both of them, which is fascinating. It shows how well educated he is and how much he prepares for these types of encounters. But as as he does so, verse 18 goes on to say, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? <laughs> they're, not taking the, they're not taking Jerusalem seriously. Uh, they're not taking Paul and his philosophy with, you know, that's, he's no Plato, you know, in their minds. Like, we have some real philosophers here. What is this idle chit-chat about? Uh, but others were saying, wait a minute here, verse 18, he seems to be the proclaimer of strange deities. He's a foreigner. He's talking about a god we don't even know. Let's give him a shot. We worship all kinds of gods. Maybe we could add him to the pantheon of our, uh, you know, worship setting. Let's, let's see what he has to say. And so they, they give him a chance uh, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. This is not stuff they're used to hearing. So let's let the foreigner say something and we can, we can critique it. We can listen to it. We'll, we'll have a jolly good time. They like hearing new ideas. In fact, that's what the text goes on to say. Uh, they said, uh, verse 19, we, uh, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears and we want to know what these things mean. And then there's this little parenthetical statement. Now, all the Athenians... And the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They love new ideas. They love the arguments that, you know, and the conversations that spark from those. It seems they care more about novelty than truth. Uh, they just, they like to engage in that sort of, of philosophical conversation. And so this is an opportunity. And here we have some foreigner. Let's give them a shot. And you know what Paul does? He takes it. He says, okay, I'm going to get a shot. I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to do the very best that I can. And again, he does, I believe, an incredible job. He has a really difficult uh, task before him. I mean, th put yourself in his shoes. You, you, if I were to go and speak about Christianity 
at a secular institution, all right, that's going to be difficult. But at the same time, it's like we're kind of starting in some ways from the same culture. Uh, we're starting, you know, they'll, they'll understand the names that I'm bringing up, like when I talk about Jesus and God. When I say God, they'll probably have a similar idea of what I mean when I say God, even if they don't believe in him. Like, there's going to be at least some connection between us. Paul here in Athens is speaking to the people who are the intellectually elite. They pride themselves on their ability to look down at, uh, you know, the, the foolish thoughts of people who, you know, try to think and aren't very good at it. And, and they have their own worldviews and they have all this. And Paul's going to come and try to somehow relate to them. At the synagogue, he can open up the scriptures. And he can talk about God and everyone knows who he's talking about. And if they can agree on what that passage says, great. He doesn't have scriptures for the Athenians. And he doesn't even have a God that they understand or will know what he means when he talks about God. If he says God, they can say, well, which one? <laughs> you got a big selection here. So it's, it's a very difficult task that he has. And so I love the way that he does it. So let's, let's read through the lesson um, and, uh, and note some of the, the things that Paul does. And hopefully as we do so, we can learn some strategies on how we can contextualize the gospel in the world around us. The way that I would talk uh, to a lot of you m about the truth of Christianity might be different than the way that I would talk to someone who's never set foot inside of a church building. Um, some of the things that we assume and kind of take for granted, a lot of people outside of these doors do not share those assumptions with us. And so if you're going to be able to reach those types of people, Paul's a pretty good person to learn from. So uh, verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For, as I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing, or worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. That's a pretty good introduction right there. Just think about what he does. On the one hand, he finds some common ground. He has to back up a lot more than the common ground he has with, with Israel. But he says, look, you guys have a desire to worship. I know something about worship. So let's talk about that. Uh, you're very religious in all respects. You can see the religion, the, the grasping for the divine all around him in this city. He sees it in idols. He doesn't agree with idols, but he at least gets their motivation for having idols. They're reaching for something. And so he pays them a compliment for that. By the way, I think if you look at the world around us, if you try to get a kind of a good grasp on the direction our world is going and some of the, the major ideas that we have to struggle with, there are some commonalities. Um, I don't think so much if you look at the world around us uh, the emphasis is on worship, perhaps, like it is in, in Athens. Like, they're all looking for something to worship. But I'll say, I think morals. I think we live in a world that cares a lot about what's right and what's wrong and really has a hard time figuring it out. Uh, they have a hard time knowing, like, how forgiveness works into right and wrong. I think we live in a world that has a hard time knowing how to shape the direction of right and wrong. Because ultimately... If you remove God from the picture and you try to develop a, an ideology of right and wrong, it's going to, I mean, the highest mind you have to go on is your own and those around you. And the problem with that is your mind and those around you don't always see eye to eye on right and wrong. So there's like, 
there's a lot of bitterness in attacking one another, in criticizing one another, because we have something in common. We believe we should live in a good moral world. We should live in a world where the, the poor are fed and where uh, people don't uh, sexually assault other people and where there's, there's respect and where there's, there's mutual love and kindness. But at the same time, I think we live in a world that doesn't know how to, to do that, but they're grasping for it. And I think, I think Paul sees that same type of thing when it comes to worship in Athens. It lives in a world where they're wanting to worship, and they've built like every possible way you could worship to every possible uh, object of worship that there is. He knows they want to worship, but he thinks that there's a lot of confusion about that. So he compliments them on that. Maybe we could take a, 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 line, a note from that, and you know what? That's some good stuff going on in our world. I think there is an honest... Um, desire to live in a good world around us. And, and there's a lot of confusion on how to get there, but I think we live in a world where people want what's good. You just need to know what that is. I think Athens was a place where people wanted God. They just didn't really know what that was. And so Paul says, well, let me tell you, um, one thing that I saw as I was walking through uh, is there was this idol, and it had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. That's a really interesting idol, by the way. Uh, what, why make that? Uh, perhaps they worship all of these gods, and they do so, um, you know, to, to make sure that the gods are honored, but also appeased, so that, you know, the gods don't become upset at them for something. And, and perhaps if you have thousands of gods, maybe there's one of them you haven't paid adequate attention to, or you don't even know about. So here you kind of cover your bases. Say, I don't know a god. Well, I'm going to worship the god I don't know. And I'm going to build an idol to the god that I don't know. And maybe that will, will appease even the gods that I'm unaware of. So Paul sees, okay, they want to worship, and they're willing to admit that there's a god they don't know about. Well, here I am. I'll tell you about him. Uh, I, I, I know about this god, so listen up. He's, he's pretty powerful. And so uh, Paul uses their own idols and their own desires as his introduction to teach him something about Jesus. He doesn't have scriptures and God in common with them, but he's finding an in, and that's, that's pretty, that's, that's impressive. All right, you get to verse 24. This is where um, he gets into something that sometimes it's called natural theology. So you have theology that you can get from like the Bible, uh, which is, you would call revealed theology. Sometimes that's the way that it's referred to. Natural theology is uh, what you can learn about God by looking at the world around you. Like, even if you didn't have a Bible, could you know anything about God? I think so. I think you'd know a lot less. <laughs> uh, but I think you could know some things about God. Paul does this sometimes even in his letters, like Romans 1. He makes arguments about the way that you should behave and the way that you should worship God based on the, the fact that the invisible God can be understood through the things that he made that are visible. It's like you can learn by looking at the mountains and the majesty and the stars of the sky and all of that, that we serve a pretty powerful God and that we serve a God who is artistic and a God who, uh, if you can look at the morals of the world around us and you can see that we serve a good God. And, and there are things that you can learn about God even if you didn't have scripture. Um, I think Paul has to now find that sort of common ground with them. We agree that there's a, that worship is good, and we agree that there's a God who you should know more about. Well, now let's talk about him, and we'll use what we can understand about the world around us in order to, to start to, to build upon this. So, uh, verse 24, the God who made the world 
and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in the temples made with hands. Now, that's, that is going to be perhaps controversial uh, to them because where Paul is standing right there, if you were to stand at this, at this same spot in Athens and take a look around you, um, up above you, about to your, your left up there, is going to be a really big structure called uh, the Parthenon, uh, or the, the Acropolis. Uh, the Acropolis means like the city up there, and then the Parthenon is the name of the big temple that's on it. But then you can also look around, you can see temples that existed, they're still there now, that existed prior to Paul. Like, they're older, they're over 2,000 years old. And he is like looking at these temples, surrounded by these idols, saying, let me tell you something. The God that I'm going to tell you about, this unknown God, he's so big and powerful and incredible that not one of these temples could hold him. Not one of these temples could contain his grandeur and his majesty. He doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands. And no matter how hard you work, you can't get him anything that he needs. Uh, he exists upon his, you know, he's divine aseity. He needs nothing for his existence. Like you and I, what do we need for our existence? We need everything for our, you know, we need space. We need, uh, you know, the existence of matter and time. We need oxygen. We need food. We need, we need, like, there's so many things that are, that have, that our existence is contingent upon. But for there to be an eternal being, there is nothing his existence is contingent upon. He exists solely because he exists. And because of that, he can always exist. If there is no time and space and matter, he still exists. If there is no food or water or oxygen, he still exists. He doesn't need parents to have come together in order for him to exist. He doesn't need anything for his existence. And so that's, that's one of the, the things that separates God from every single thing that's not God. Everything that's not God depends on something for its existence, and God does not. And so Paul begins making this point, the God that I'm talking about, he doesn't need temples. And he certainly isn't adequately represented by idols. So keep, keep reading. Uh, he says in verse 25, uh, he doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breadth in all things. You don't have to serve God for his existence. You exist because he serves you. It's like, like the reason you exist is because he's given you the stuff that you need. So he doesn't need anything necessarily from you for him to exist. And that's not really the way that, that the Greeks had thought about their gods. Like, they needed to build houses for their gods. Sometimes they needed to feed their gods. Uh, you know, they would they, offer sacrifices and bring them into these temples, and that was the food for their god. And, and they would go through these things. And Paul's saying, ultimately, those things represent a misunderstanding of who God is. Verse 26. Verse 26 is interesting, because you can see he's coming from a Jewish mindset and worldview. Like, he's talking Genesis here. He doesn't use the word Genesis, but he's talking about Adam. He's talking about Genesis. He says in verse 26, And he made from one, uh, from one man, or from one people, uh, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed uh, times and boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might reach for him or grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. Th those idols, that was their attempt to like 
to reach out and try to find God somewhere. Imagine being blindfolded, or forget the blindfold. You walk into a dark room, and you're looking for the light switch. And you're, you, I know it's around here somewhere, and you're trying to find the thing on the wall. I don't know if you've ever done that. I've done that, especially if it's a room I'm not you know, too familiar with. You, like, you know that it's there somewhere. You just have to find it, but it's hard to find. And he says that's what, that's what so many people who God has created have found themselves in that situation. They're looking for him, and they know he's around there somewhere. And so what happens? Well, they build an idol to an unknown God. But Paul is saying that God can be known, and he has allowed you to grope in the darkness for him, to reach out for him. But he has acted in history in such a way that now you can find him. Uh, As you keep reading verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, we are also his children. That's a poem uh, written by a Greek philosopher. We actually know who that comes from. He's quoting Aratus, uh, writing Phenomena, has written, and it's pretty lengthy, and he adds that line in there that Paul uses to make some sort of, again, a connection with them. He's used their idols, their desire for worship, their understanding of the world around them and their temples, and now he's using their own literature to try to build some sort of foundation to, uh, to have a commonality with them from which to teach about the, the God they don't know. And so that quotation he gives, he's saying, this is something we can all agree on, that we're all his children. So what does that mean about him if we're his children? Well, we are not like wood and stone and gold and silver, right? Well, that means he isn't either. Uh, And so that's why he says in verse 29, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed out of the heart and thought of man. It's like an idol is something that a man makes in his image. You are made in God's image. God is your father, so you don't make your God. You're his children, and he's going to be something kind of like you. Like, I think this is a way of talking about the image of God. So he's talked about, like, the story of Genesis briefly from Adam that leads to the world. He's talked about the fact that we're going to, in some ways, be like our father. And these are ways that Paul is teaching Genesis truths without even talking about Genesis. He's teaching—he doesn't say, haven't you guys read the Ten Commandments? Don't make any gods. If he were in the synagogue, he could say that and it would settle it. Here, he has to make a very different, he has to go a very different way around getting to that point. Uh, But he's getting there by using their own literature and, and hopefully their own logic and reasoning. But then you get to verse 30, and he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. All right, so here's where he's going to start getting to the application of these ideas that he's been presenting. He says, God overlooked the times of ignorance. What times of ignorance? the times when they were groping in the dark for the light switch. There's a God that they're looking for. He says God perhaps overlooked some of those things, but now God has acted in such a way that he's not going to be overlooking that. Uh, Verse 30, God overlooked the times of ignorance, but God is now declaring that all people everywhere, that's why Paul's going on these journeys to meet all people everywhere, that they should repent. They should change their mindset about who God is and change the way that they act towards him. Because, verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Here's where Paul 
He's going to have a hard time keeping his audience. This is, the, this is the transition that's hard to make. Everything else he said, they could pretty easily, I mean, they could go along with by just looking at their idols, looking at their temples, thinking about God, looking at the world around them, knowing their own literature. Like, but once he starts telling them about something that they can't see, that there was actually a man who died and God raised him from the dead, that goes against what we know about nature. Uh, that goes against natural theology. What you can learn, what you, if you were to look at just nature, you would think, yeah, things live, they grow old, they grow weak, and they die. Paul is now going to say, but this God has reversed that, and he has proven it by raising someone from the dead. And the lesson actually doesn't go much further than that. Uh, I think the Greeks... Uh, we're willing to go along probably with some of his ideas and we're interested in them. But when you get to this point, they now have to believe in something that goes against everything they've ever seen. Uh, that, that's, that's one of the struggles with the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, some people, I think modern people, tend to, to think that the ancients were just gullible. Oh, they, yeah, they believe in miracles, they believe in resurrection, they believe in all that stuff. It's like... You read what ancient people say about resurrection. It's not something that they believed in. Uh, they knew, you, you don't need to be a modern scientist to know that dead people stay dead. Uh, that, that's something that just about anyone, that anyone who's ever experienced life can see that right before them. Paul has to get them to reverse what they've, the only thing they've ever seen and experienced before. Could this God that he was describing do it? Yes, he could do that. And surely they would agree with that. But resurrection does not fit very well within the Greek worldview. In fact, I mentioned Tertullian earlier, one of the things that he was actually writing about when he said, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens, is the fact that he thinks ideas from like Greek philosophy are actually making their way into the church, and that's some of these Gnostic ideas and, and stuff about instead of the resurrection, you know, people uh, believing simply in the immortality of the soul as opposed to the actual resurrection of the body. Those are Greek ideas. And so when Paul says that, he gets a couple of responses. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some began to sneer. All right, you're not going to convince these folks. Uh, they begin to laugh. These are probably the, some of the same people who thought, what is this idle babbler talking about before the lesson even started? But some of them, they seem to be intrigued. Uh, they say, we will hear you again on this. They want to, another opportunity maybe to pick at it, but also to hear more and see what they can figure out together. This is a new idea. Let's talk about it. And then you have some people in verse 34 who joined them and believed. Um, it's not a huge group that's mentioned, but it is the gospel making a profound impact in the unlikeliest city, in the unlikeliest setting, and Paul is able to do so. I think there are some things there that we can learn about reaching the world around us and, uh, and finding common ground uh, when it's difficult to do and also recognizing that no matter how much you find common ground, there's going to be that turning point where you have to get to the truth that they might not want to accept. And you never know what people are going to do when you get to that point. But even in Athens, some came to believe the message from Jerusalem. And that's a pretty powerful testimony to what God can do. And if there's anyone here this evening who wants to believe that message, who wants to become a Christian, who wants to give their life to Christ, we pray that you let that be known. And if there's anyone here who would like the prayers of the church, please let that be known while we stand and as we sing.